Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. As we stand, let me pray for us. We've been singing in that last verse, Heavenly Father, that all mankind would render praises to Christ, to you, our Redeemer and King. We pray that would begin with us not just in with our lips, but from the very depth of our being, from our hearts, genuine praise, wanting to know you and to love you more than anything else. And we ask that through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, welcome. It's uh, great to see you. Uh, We're going to continue looking through uh, this section of Luke's Gospel. Uh, Judy read the passage for us earlier. If you've been with us uh, through this term, you'll see how we're just working through this section of Luke. We're at Luke chapter 14, verse 15 and following tonight, and page 1048. I think you'll find it extremely helpful if you have that open in front of you. Uh, Let me tell you a story. That's what Jesus said at the dinner party that he was at. And the story went like this. Luke chapter 14 and verse 16. We've just had it read. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Excuses, excuses, excuses. And they are the most lame and pathetic excuses you could ever expect to hear. Here are people who've been invited to the most extravagant banquet in the most brilliant company, not to mention palatial surroundings. They've been given an invitation to die for. Most people would be thrilled to be included on the guest list. For one reason or another, though, these people just don't fancy it. If Jesus were telling the story today, it would go something like this. Verse 18, dinner is ready, you say? Well, yes, I know I said I'd be there, but I've just bought a house and I need to go and check it over. 
Verse 19, dinner is ready. Well, yes, I know I said I'd come, but I've got some very important outstanding business. Sorry. Verse 20, dinner is ready. Well, yes, I know I said I'd be there, but that was yesterday. And I've lined up a date with this cracking girl at the office. Every one of these excuses is just that. It's a wafer-thin excuse. And we can see right through them. It might not have been so bad if these people had dreamt up a good reason for turning down the invitation. But these excuses are so feeble that, frankly, they are downright insulting. I mean, the first guy in verse 18 who just bought a field, a piece of real estate. For us today, he might have just bought a house. Can you imagine anyone buying a house without looking at it first? And besides, even if he hadn't looked at it before making the bank transfer for several hundred thousand pounds, he didn't have to go and look at it there and then. He could still go to the banquet. The field would still be there in the morning. Or the second guy in verse 19, a farmer, I presume, he just bought five yoke of oxen and he said that he needed to try them out. Now, look, buying 10 oxen to plough his fields would have been a big business investment. Can you really imagine any farmer today buying a state-of-the-art tractor? And we're talking about an investment of tens of thousands of pounds here. Can you imagine any farmer buying expensive, essential farm equipment without first trying it out? The excuse just doesn't add up. Or the third guy in verse 20 who just got married. Now, at first, his reason does seem like a decent excuse to miss a dinner party. Until, of course, you think about it. Can you imagine anyone getting married at such short notice that they had to cancel a dinner engagement that they only made a day or two beforehand? It is highly unlikely and it certainly would never have happened in first century Judaism where a wedding was a huge affair planned months ahead. These excuses are flimsy to say the least. And Jesus quite deliberately tells the story with the lamest and most feeble excuses you could expect to hear Because Jesus is making the point that no one has a good reason not to accept the invitation that God gives to his wonderful eternal banquet. Whatever our excuses, to turn down God's invitation is, frankly, pathetic. And worse than that, it is a deliberate slap in the face to God. In their own way, each of these people is saying, frankly, old man, there are lots of things I'd rather be doing with my time than spending my time in your company. Ouch. Now, of course, it's no surprise to us that some people turn down God's gracious invitation. Even in a meeting uh, in a largish church gathering like this, we know that just within a few miles of here, there are thousands and thousands of people who don't want anything to do with God. So when you read this, you think, yeah, that's right. That's what happens in the world. We're not surprised to hear Jesus telling a parable about people, many people who make excuses not to accept God's invitation. But that's not the point Jesus is making here. The really shocking thing here is that Jesus told this story to religious leaders. Jesus is telling this parable to the religious establishment, to people who think that they have accepted God's invitation but who in reality don't want to spend their time in God's presence. Let me take you back to the beginning of of the chapter. For those of you who were here last week, this will be familiar to you, but a helpful recap, I hope. The chapter began with Jesus being invited to dinner. 
The dinner party was thrown by a well-respected religious leader, a prominent Pharisee is how Luke describes him in verse 1. And from the moment Jesus walked into the room and sat down to eat, there wasn't a dull moment. Even before anyone had tucked into their mushroom soup, in verse 3, Jesus asked the religious experts a searching and penetrating theological question which left them speechless. Now that was embarrassing. No sooner had they finished the soup and they moved into the coco van than Jesus had a clever little story in verse 5 which left the religious elite dumbfounded. Verse 6, they had nothing to say. More embarrassment. Out came the Black Forest Gatto and then in verse 8, Jesus told the dinner guests a parable, a story all about bagging the best seats at a dinner party. Hugely embarrassing because that was exactly what everyone at this dinner party had tried to do. And if that wasn't enough, as the cheese and biscuits came round, Jesus then told them another story about how people only invite rich friends round to dinner. Never inviting the socially awkward or socially unacceptable to dinner. Do you see it there in verse 13? When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you'll be blessed. What a conversation stopper that was. Because one quick look around the table and it was abundantly clear that there was none in that category at this dinner party. So by the time we reached the end of verse 14, you could cut the atmosphere with your fish knife. Everyone at the dinner, was, uh, dinner party felt awkward. Some felt ashamed. Most, I guess, were just getting more and more ticked off with Jesus, frankly. So as the coffee and the dinner min- after dinner minutes came round, everyone was feeling very uncomfortable. No one really knew what to say. After eight, anyone? Jesus' uh, words had gone down like a pork sausage at a Jewish bar mitzvah. And so to break the the embarrassed silence, one of the guests at the table pipes up, verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard said, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Can you hear this man desperately trying to keep the conversation positive with a kind of nod to what Jesus had just said about being blessed at the final resurrection? This man pipes up, what a great thing it will be to be at God's eternal heavenly banquet on that final day of resurrection. It was something that they often talked about in first, Jewish, uh, first century Jewish society. The rabbis talked often about the coming kingdom of God. Prophets like Isaiah had likened that day to a huge banquet, a feast laid on by God himself. So with the situation at this dinner party, just a little awkward to say the least, one of the guests pipes up, verse 15, blessed is the man who'll eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. He's saying, basically, I'm looking forward to that great banquet that God's got lined up for us all. Won't it be terrific? Much better than this one. And the point is, he was certainly confident in his own salvation. You see, despite everything Jesus had been saying, he still was very sure that he was okay. And that's why Jesus told this story. He tells the story about a man who threw a banquet. So do you see, Jesus told this story... So that religious people, the very people who are around the table, religious people who had misplaced confidence about their place in God's kingdom, might just think again. It's not difficult to understand this parable. The man preparing the great banquet represents God himself. And how generous he is. Verse 16, he prepares a great banquet. And he invites many guests. How kind of God laying on such a lavish feast. How kind of him to invite so many people to enjoy the banquet. 
And I think when we look at the detail, it's reasonable to consider that the, the preparation that's mentioned in verse 16 is to be a, an allusion back to the Old Testament prophets who had told of the future arrival of the kingdom of God. And I think it's reasonable to think of the many guests that are mentioned in verse 16 to the, be the people of the Jewish nation who down through the years had received the word of the prophets. And so having sent out the invitation through the prophets... The story continues, verse 17. At that time of the banquet, at that time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now, this might sound a little strange to our ears, but not to first century hearers. In the first century, a host would often invite guests a few days before the dinner party so that he could work out how many to cater for. Then, when the food was ready, he would send a second invitation for his guests to come without further delay. But here's the thing for us. Using that normal first century protocol, Jesus' words inject a powerful thought here. In verse 17, the servant says, come now, the feast is ready now. The point is this, the Old Testament prophets had announced the future coming of the kingdom, but now a servant has been sent, verse 17, to say it's ready. Now, the banquet is ready, the kingdom is here. So do you see, the servant in the parable is Jesus himself. The prophets before him had told of the coming kingdom. He's now come to inaugurate it. And then come the pathetic excuses, lame, pathetic excuses. See, as we remember why Jesus told this story, these excuses represent the kind of excuses that come from religious people. Not from people who are on the outside of things, but for people who seem to have accepted God's invitation. People who you'd think were in. People like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in those days. And today, people like you and me. People who really do seem to want to have something to do with God. So how is it that people who to all intents and purposes are God's people and who seem to want to be known to be God's people, how do people like that, like us, turn down God's invitation? Well, look again at the excuses. Verse 18 is all bound up with a concern for real estate, the priority of having a nice house. The oxen in verse 19 is all about livelihood, the priority of our career. Verse 20, marriage, it's all about the priority of romantic relationships. And put like that, it seems nothing changes. Those are precisely the things that people put before God today. Even people that, who say they are for God. I can think of so many people who describe themselves as committed Christians who put their house as their highest priority. So I keep meeting committed Christians who choose to move to a place where they can live in a large house, in a swanky neighbourhood, but who give no thought to whether it's near a good church or not. Well, that's not top of the list. And I know so many people who've stretched themselves financially to buy a house bigger than they need, and as a result they have to work longer and longer hours to pay the mortgage and can't get involved with God's people and have no time to serve the Lord. Where's their priority? And then there are people who'd never dream of moving to a difficult area of the city to go on a church plant for the sake of the gospel, not if it meant having to live there. 
with that type of people. House first and career first. Again, I think of those who say they're committed to Christ, who say they're doing their job for the glory of God, but they never tell anyone at work that they're a Christian. So even if they do do a great job, and I'm sure they do, they get all the glory. And I think of people who never invite their friends and colleagues to events at church or talk about the gospel because it might hinder their chances of promotion. Where's their priority then? And others who never stand up for the right thing at work, ethically or morally, they keep quiet and go along with the status quo, fearful they might lose their job. Well, they've worked so hard to get to this point. Their job, their career is the most important thing to them, isn't it? And then romantic relationships. What a train crash this has been for so many Christians. Again, people who call themselves committed Christians who are so desperate for marriage, they'll marry someone who isn't a Christian. Where's the priority there? Or Christian people who are married having adulterous affairs. My goodness sake, where is the priority there? And it happens in this church. Don't look outside. Or Christian men addicted to pornography. Please don't think that the things you do in private have no impact on your Christian walk and witness. Where's your priority then? In all these ways, we put other things before our God. We might come to church, be involved in a small group. We say that we love God, we sing the songs. In reality, other things are far more important to us than him. Oh, and these things, of course, are just a sample. It can be other things as well, the pursuit of leisure activities and holidays, particularly when we're retired and have a few pounds in the bank. Or the children's education. We can so easily put anything before God. The excuses might change, but you see, when we put things before God, things that we might think are good and worthy, compared to God, they are feeble excuses. And as far as God is concerned, it's downright insulting to put these things before him. I mean, to put him, the loving, gracious creator and Lord of all, second to a house or a career or whatever, It's a slap in the face to God, isn't it? And so this parable exposes how even those of us who say we love God love other things far more. But you know, I think it's even more subtle than that. Every Wednesday, the staff team bring their sandwiches round to my house and we sit around my dining room table munching our picnic with a mug of tea And we look together at the Bible passages that we're going to be preaching on on Sunday. It happened this week as usual. We looked at Mark chapter 10 first, which Pete Scammon preached on this morning. Then we looked at this Bible passage that I was going to be preaching on this evening. And it was Peter Brammel, our student worker, who I think got to the very heart of the issue with one brilliant comment. He pointed out that in the first half of the chapter, the chapter that he preached last week, Jesus was exposing the pride of the religious leaders. Jesus was highlighting how they craved recognition and a position in society. See, verse 8, they picked for themselves the places of honour at the table. They thought so highly of themselves and they wanted others to think highly of them too. In verse 10, they wanted to be honoured by others. I'm so important, I'll sit there. 
They thought so highly of themselves, they invited to their dinner parties, verse 12, their friends, their relatives, and their rich neighbours. Do you see it? For them, life was about hobnobbing with the elite, moving in all the right circles. And that is why they didn't invite, verse 13, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And that is why the excuses in verses 18 to 20 are real estate and career and marriage. Because it is those things that give us status in the world. If I live in the right neighbourhood, like forward, and I have a great job, I'm a professional with a degree or two, and I'm with the right person, married with 2.4 children, these are my tickets to being socially accepted or better, to being honoured. Oh, look at that, the house they live in. They must be important. Oh, you do that for a job, do you? That's very impressive. And you see, it's when the acceptance of others becomes the most important thing in my life that I find myself unwittingly turning down God's invitation. Other things become more important than the kingdom of God. These other things state that bring me status. They drive my decisions and fill my diary and determine where I live and how I'll spend my money. Even if I say I'm a committed Christian, in reality, other things, things that give me a place in this world and things that give me honour and status are far more important to me. And this parable says that is so insulting to God. And the thing is, to us, these things appear to be so important. See, the excuses we see are lame and pathetic, but the people who gave them thought they were really good excuses. These other things we pursue appear to be such good things to pursue. They're good excuses for the way I live my life. I mean, it's good to strive for a house and a great career and the right partner. And of course, there's nothing wrong with those things. The problem comes when the pursuit of those things supersede the pursuit of God. And the real problem comes when I'm after those things because I want some place of honour. See, when I've done that, when I've pursued these things rather than God, then this parable says on that final day, if you put honour and status above knowing God, then on the final day, you and everyone will see what a lame and frankly pathetic excuse your life was. And on that day, verse 21, the owner of the house will be angry. He'll be angry with people who put other things before him, other things that really don't matter a jot He'll be angry with anyone who's tried to make a name for themselves. And you see how foolish it will be to, be to have turned down an invitation to the greatest banquet that lasts forever in the most honoured company, in the company of royalty, of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Turning that down for anything else will make our excuses look pitiful. But most of all, God will be angry because of the great pains he went to to prepare the banquet. You see, it cost God so much to lay on this banquet. Not because he bought the finest cuts of meat and laid out the most extravagant tablecloths, but because he had to pay a colossal price to open the door into the banquet. The price was none other than him giving himself in the form of his son, giving himself to die on a cross. See, the cross reminds us that while the invitation to this banquet is free, completely free, it isn't cheap. 
But he willingly paid that price because he wanted you and me to enjoy the banquet. No wonder he's angry when we turn our back on him with the most lame excuses, when we'd rather be honoured by people than be part of his kingdom. And even worse, when we do it all pretending to put him first. You see, that's the people he's speaking to. There's a solemn warning here for all of us who are like the Pharisees. For all of us who appear to be committed to God. I think we do well to heed the warning. To look closely at our hearts. And be honest with ourselves and with our God. That's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of this week. And been doing while I've been preparing this. There is a warning here. But as we close there's also a lovely invitation. There's a lovely invitation to everyone who's on the outside. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported all this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you order is to be done, but, but still there's room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. God has prepared a banquet. And his invitation to that banquet comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and having paid such a huge price. So he is determined to gather a people for himself, to gather a people to enjoy the feast. And so in the very best sense of the phrase, he won't take no for an answer. He says to his servants, go and convince people to come. And you see who he goes to, I love it. The list in verse 23 is exactly the same as the list in verse 13. The people who've been shunned by the world because they can't give me any status. The people who have no position in this world are the very people that the Lord Jesus goes to and says, come in. The very people who probably think they don't deserve God's invitation. And the master says, go and convince them they can come. Do everything you can to convince them that they are wanted. And you see, if that's you this evening, if you're sitting here this evening feeling like a nobody and wondering if God really wants you, through this brilliant story, Jesus says, yes, I do want you. And if I can put it this way, he says, I won't take no for an answer. Come. Come and enjoy the heavenly banquet. And then enjoy eternity with me forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, as the people who are most like the people that Jesus was speaking to, ask you to help us to see if we are wrongly assuming that we're going to be at that banquet. If we're hiding behind some sort of sort of religious veneer, uh, maybe not the same one that they would have held, hid behind, but one that is no less uh, or, or less sincere than, than they thought they were. If we're hiding behind the fact that we call ourselves committed Christians but really are not committed at all, we ask you to show us that. And we ask you to help us to repent of it. 
And we ask you to help us to see how lame excuses are. But also to see how wonderful the banquet is. How wonderful it is to be in relationship with you. And how anything else we're pursuing really is pathetic compared compared to you. We ask you to do that kind of work in our hearts because we know our hearts are deceitful above all things. And we can't easily see these things ourselves. And we ask you to help us to be honest with each other. That where we see one another living in ways that are pursuing the wrong things, that we gently tell each other. And we pray the result of all of this would be that we would be people who are genuinely committed to you. Saved by grace, not by works. But because of the grace that has come into our lives, longing to give you everything. And so we ask these things and so much more through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.